to you for coming back to another episode of Loud and Seemingly Confident. Just wanted to give you a heads up before we start that my guest does live next to quite a busy road, so you might hear a little bit of traffic rumbling underneath us as we're talking, but he also has a really good microphone, so we can both be heard really well. Just wanted to give you that heads up. Now enjoy the episode. Wait, all these... Uh, anti-shark measures that you hear about governments trialing, you know, anti-shark wetsuits or anti-shark sounders, shark nets, uh, baited drum lines. The best shark repellent I've ever found is a camera and a willingness to take photos of sharks. introverts, extroverts, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Chelsea Heaney, and my guest today is an old friend of mine. He's a marine biologist, a brilliant underwater photographer, and when I was 16, I had a massive crush on him. Please welcome to the show, Jack Breeden. Hello, thank you for having me. (laughs) I was like, I have to include that. Uh, (laughs) But I sort of, I realized as I was writing that introduction, we've known each other for nearly 10 years, and that seems insane to me. What do you mean nearly? No, we met earlier than that, surely. No, about like 15 or 16. I just turned 25. Oh, are we that old? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of escapes you, doesn't it? I, I, I hit 19 and then 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 time went past, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I also realised we're, we're recording this over Skype, and I think the first time I used Skype, was um, you and I would message each other over Skype during class. Um, and I don't know why we didn't just text. Because <laughs> I didn't have a phone. You didn't have a phone? I, didn't, I don't remember that. Why didn't you have a phone? Uh, you'll, you'll remember when I say, if you cast your mind back to the early 2000s when everyone was getting their Blackberries and their first-generation smartphones, I was still rocking the, uh, the old Nokia. Oh, I do remember that. Uh, the silver Nokia's, and it took too long to text, and <laughs> it was a pain. The buttons were so small that no one with real fingers could use them. Mm-hmm. But then, and then I got my flip phone, and I held on to that until yeah. just two years ago. Two years ago, you got a smartphone. Well, I always thought to myself, I'll I'll get a better phone when this one breaks, but <laughs> they don't break. They just I, no. I went for swims with it. I flooded it with wine once when a broke wine bottle broke in my backpack. It's just just kept <laughs> ticking along, and it never broke. Till one day, some of my friends were like, "Jack, this is an intervention. <laughs> we need to be able to contact you some other way." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad they intervened. <laughs> it was time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Anyway, we'll jump straight into it. Um, my question for you is, what came first, a love of marine animals or a love of photography? That's a really difficult question. So photography is something that I always, like, had bubbling in the background, but I never had access to a camera. I got my first uh, first camera when I was first year uni, so 19, 19 yeah. years old. So, But I'd always sort of liked taking photos. I used to go on school camps and really sparingly use the uh, little Kodak disposable cameras. Disposable ones, yeah. Had had 21 photos in them and you'd scroll them out and 
my parents would go get them developed and they'd be like, oh, Jack, let's sit down and show us how your school camp or whatever was. And then it would be like 15 photos of funguses, two lizards, and then maybe, <laughs> maybe a shot of the bunk bed. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I can't tell whether that came first or the love of the ocean because I you know, grew up in Williamstown yeah. in Melbourne and the ocean was right there. And because it's the bay, snorkeling is very, very accessible. So I've been doing it since I was really, really young. Yeah. So I can't even remember going for my first snorkel because it's sort of lost to the mists of time now. Yeah, that's fair enough. And um, you you studied marine biology and you're, you're currently doing your master's as well. Where do you hope this like would take you? What does a marine biologist actually do? Well, that's that's the uh, million dollar question, or more accurately, uh, no no dollar question. <laughs> uh, I don't think I've met anyone that studies marine biology that wants to do it as a career. No one starts that degree thinking this will get me a job in this field. Yeah. Everyone does it just because you want to know more. It really gets quite addictive. The whole knowing more, particularly in the ocean, because unlike other forms of study where it, becomes academic even terrestrial biology you sort of go oh look there are the kangaroos over there yeah uh in marine biology you put a mask on and your face in the water and you can like the fish come within touching distance it's right there yeah and there's so many things that you see that don't have answers to them that you and answers that aren't easily accessible or answers that don't exist yet yeah so you've got to take that extra step to learn more um in terms of jobs, it's it's yeah, no one no one has a career path in mind when it comes to marine <laughs> biology. Everyone just does it for the love of it. Yeah. That's fair enough. Do you think that um that understanding of marine biology is um helpful when you're doing your, your underwater photography? Like could you do what you do without that knowledge? I some people do that sort of thing without without yeah. the knowledge, but to give some sort of context to my underwater photography, it started with, and actually technically still is, a little Olympus TG4 compact camera. It's nothing fancy. Mm. It's a tiny little uh, $250 <laughs> off the shelf at JB Hi-Fi camera. Wow. But then that, I put that in housing, and then all of a sudden I could take it scuba diving with me and then a tray became lights, became video light, became wide angle lens. It's taken me, what, six years now to put it together to yeah. what it is. Some people, because photography is all about the gear, some people have the, the, the cash to just jump in with really good gear and by default take pretty nice yeah. photos. But, and there's people like me on the other side of the coin where we use the bare minimum for a long time i had my camera and gopro mounted together with a piece of pvc pipe <laughs> from bunnings because i couldn't <laughs> afford a real tray so i went to bunnings and got myself a uh five dollar sixty tray Good. to connect the two yeah um there's people like us and there's a couple of us there's uh also snorkel down under i'll give a shout out to his name's mm-hmm. uh lawrence same sort of thing where we, because of our knowledge of marine biology, we, we can seek out those photo opportunities that other people might not see or might not know about. Um, yeah. Particularly behaving around animals is something you either accumulate over decades and decades of diving 
or you go and study marine biology and suddenly, you know, you know how to behave around cuttlefish so that they don't just swim away. Yeah. Because the trick with marine or underwater photography is that there's no there's no telescopic lenses. Mm. So you see all these Nat Geo photographers that have taken an amazing close-up of a polar bear or something, but they're 200 metres away. Yeah. Because air is really clear. If yeah. If something is more than a metre away underwater, it's probably not going to turn out right. So yeah. that goes for everything from sharks to cuttlefish to nudibranchs to landscape photography. You have to be with within an inch of it for the photo to turn out nice. Otherwise, it'll be just too murky, too fuzzy, yeah. too distant. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, I want to sort of preamble this by saying my, my dad does, you know, has had his fair share of, of diving and photography experience. So I sort of asked him if he had any questions for you. So some of the more technical questions do come from dad. Um, but his first one was, can you speak whale like Dory? Um, I can't speak whale, but I can speak dolphin. Yes. So this dolphins are hyper-intelligent animals, and we often find that if, particularly in the surf, the dolphins will swim past, but if you f- put your face in the water and go, <laughs> they'll come and check you out. Um, great. Do you know what you're saying? Or <laughs> No, it's, I'm, I'm fairly certain it's just uh, the dolphins going, oh, sounds like there's an idiot over there. Let's go have a look. <laughs> Let's go poke fun at the stupid guy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a great uh, parlour trick, particularly yeah. when you're sitting out on the surf with a couple of strangers. It always makes you uh, makes people go, what? When you're sitting out there and uh, they see the dolphins go past, usually someone thinks it's a shark. Um, but you see the dolphins and then you, you turn to whoever's next to you and say, hey, I want to wanna bet I can get the dolphins to come here. And invariably everyone's like, nah, no, you can't. <laughs> Um, and a, a actual proper question that came from my dad was, um, when you're, when you're doing your photography, do you normally shallow dive for natural light or do you take lighting with you? I think you mentioned a bit of lighting before. Uh, so bit of column A, bit of column B. I, almost all of my photography is done, uh, free diving. So yeah. I don't actually scuba that often. I certainly don't. Most of my scuba diving is scientific or commercial. It's yeah. not recreational with my camera. Um, so more often than not, I'm limited to the air that I can hold in my lungs, right. which is usually good for uh, up to 20 metres if I'm uh, if I'm having a good day. Yeah. But <laughs> that means that as photographically, it makes it a bit easier because you do have natural light available. Mm-hmm. For the listeners that uh, aren't familiar with uh, light attenuation underwater, which is probably most people, <laughs> most. <laughs> uh, the reason the ocean is blue is because it absorbs all the other colours of light. So blue penetrates the furthest. Red light goes out straight away. Yeah. So within, if you go 10 metres underwater... Anything deeper, there is no more red light. There you go. Then the next one to filter out is yellow and then green. And then once you get a couple of kilometres underwater, then your blue light finally filters out. But the reason the ocean is blue is because all that white light's going in and the ocean is absorbing all of the red, yellow and green and mm. just sending back only only blue light. Um, there you go. But for photography purposes, that... Mm. 
presents quite a challenge because it yeah. does mean if you go below that 10 meter mark there is no red in anything and yeah. i think we take for granted the importance of red in our color spectrum mm. um red is is everywhere anything that is brown has yeah. red in it. anything that's white has red in it uh so once you go that that deep white things appear blue uh things that were red turn black because they're not reflecting any light anymore. Yeah. So that's why you see uh, underwater camera rigs with these great big arms on them with great big uh, bulbs. Yeah. Because you have to provide all of the light yourself. Yourself, yeah. Otherwise it comes out washed out. Having said that, though, just with free diving, the best photos I've ever taken are in that top 10-meter range. Mm. Uh, for anyone that wants to get into underwater photography, the best thing, way to start is on snorkel. You don't need to go deep. The amazing things aren't deep. They're all pretty shallow. Mm. And you'll get the best photos the shallower you are. There you go. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, um, do you mostly take still images or do you sort of take video and then pull stills from the video? Because obviously, you know, everything's moving so much around you. Uh, so if I, if I film, then it's for a film. If I photograph, it's... Uh, for yeah. a photograph um so i sort of have to pick and choose the moments what is worth filming what is mm -hmm. worth uh taking still images um the at the moment i'm going through a bit of a phase of just still images i haven't filmed yeah. anything for quite a while um but that's next on the cards is probably a good solid underwater film yeah <laughs> um now is there an animal that you really want to see and you really be at, want to photograph that you haven't had the chance to yet? Um, there's a massive list. It's probably got yeah. <laughs> somewhere between two and 500 species that I really, 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 really want to see. Mm -hmm. On my most re recent work trip, which is the first dive trip I've done in five years, where wow. I haven't had a camera on board at all. <laughs> So not 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 even just the thing without its housing to stick underwater. I just did wanted to make a good impression at a new job. Didn't yep. take my camera, and we had humpback whales come to the back <gasps> of the boat, and within within could have reached out and touched them. It was absolutely spectacular, and we were all hanging off the back dive deck with our masks on, faces in the water, yeah. looking at them, but. Oh, it was both the most amazing and worst experience of my life. Because yeah. <laughs> the whole time I was going, this is astonishing. No one's ever going to believe this. And I can't prove it. <laughs> That's so frustrating. Well, hopefully so, you see them again. You'll have your camera with you. Swimming and photographing whales was very high on my bucket list. And yeah. <laughs> I got it half done. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I remember once I went on, like, you know, a whale watching boat um over in WA and um it was not a great experience for me I got very seasick uh and threw up all over the back of the deck uh it was not nice and during that time uh you know mum was with me because I was quite young and uh my sister and my dad were at the front of the boat seeing all the whales <laughs> and I was just Throwing my guts up. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, a occupational hazard of marine. Yeah. I'm very lucky I don't I don't get seasick. Um, but on the other side of the coin, I get terribly landsick. So what? if you spend enough time on a boat, usually 
if you're out for several days at a time or in my case uh, two weeks at a time uh, your brain adjusts to the way everything's yeah. rocking just all the time is rocking your brain adjusts but it takes a while to remember that land isn't rocking <laughs> so uh, it's where the uh, where the drunken sailor idea <laughs> is that, yeah, sailors and people that spend a lot of time out at sea step off their boats and they look drunk. That's because the world is <laughs> tilting and tipping underneath them the whole time. And, yeah, unfortunately, I, I well, fortunately, I can get on a boat and be happy as Larry, but get back on land, I spend a whole day feeling nauseous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's no good. Um, do you, I mean, you, you know, you've talked about wanting, wanting to photograph the humpback whales, but you didn't get to. What is your favorite animal that you photographed or maybe your favorite photograph that you've taken that's like asking someone to choose between their children chelsea i know but my parents choose me so (laughs) 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 i there's just so i have to categorize everything so uh, there's you know there's a favorite macro photo and a favorite middle distance photo favorite landscape and a favorite shark photo etc etc there's there's one for each of the the categories um i certainly have lots of repeat photos that are sort of very similar but always trying to improve on the the, the concept of the shot yeah. um certainly some of the best animals to photograph are things like cuttlefish because they're naturally curious yeah. they'll come right up to the lens and they're gorgeous animals that change pattern and shape uh as well as your tv does they can change yeah. their color like a television so they are like every single photo is different even though they're taken seconds apart wow and the cuttlefish can be in the same position you take 30 photos but then you can go through and choose which one is the the prettiest based on its own appearance yeah but then there's other things i really like photograph like i've massive soft spot for sharks i think every marine biologist has a soft spot for sharks yeah um which they're difficult because they don't want to come particularly close to you. Yeah. But when I, when all these uh, anti-shark measures that you hear about governments trialing, you know, anti-shark wetsuits or anti-shark sounders, shark nets, uh, baited drum lines, the best shark repellent I've ever found camera. is a camera <laughs> and a willingness to take photos of sharks. <laughs> then they'll, they'll piss right off. <laughs> You know, just hide it behind your back and get close and, and pull the camera out. <laughs> yeah. Have you had any um, really, like, interesting interactions with some of the animals? Can you tell us about any particular ones? Um, almost every interaction with animals is, is unique. I mean, there's some things that are a bit dull that don't really interact with you and don't uh, sort of acknowledge you things like your sea slugs, which is great for taking photos because they just sort of do their thing. You don't, uh, you can't really disturb them unless you physically handle them. So uh, you can just be patient, take amazing natural behavioural photos. Uh, things like seahorses, everyone loves seahorses, but I find them a bit dull when it comes to <laughs> photography because they, they, they don't care. They're not interested in you. No. Um, they'll... The most interaction you'll get out of a seahorse is if it acknowledges your presence, it'll just turn away. It won't. It won't move away. It'll just face the other direction. So <laughs> I have lots, lots of photos of the backs of uh, seahorse heads. Um, but 
there are some animals that are really fun to photograph. Things like seals. I know it's sort of a typical answer, but seals really are the puppy dogs of the sea. Gorgeous. And they like people. They yeah. think we're, they, they treat us like really awkward seals. <laughs> so they come and they play with you and they try and uh, try and you know have a bit of fun before getting bored and moving off. Sort yeah. of like, oh look, here come the special ones. Let's uh, you know be nice for a bit. But yeah, they they their seals are lovely, and you can get some great photos of seals. One of my favorite, one of my favorite photos is uh, of seals off Montague Island in New South Wales. This yeah. uh, juvenile seal is just playing with us, and yeah. the more engaged you are, the more engaged they'll be. You see lots of people go uh, photographing or swimming with seals, and they sit really still and hope the seal comes close to you. The easiest way to get a seal to come close to you is to chase. Oh. Swim at it, blow bubbles, <laughs> do flips, you know, be as interesting as possible because if you're boring, the seal will leap. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It wants to come and play. Yeah. And go. then, of course, when you do get that, that shark photo, when the shark decides, hey, I'm going to check out this yeah. this guy, they're, they're my favourite moments just because they're so rare yeah. and uh, so rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do want to talk about sharks for a minute. Obviously, you know, sharks get quite a bad rap, um, which is unfortunate. But um, you know, like I, I and I'm sure you do as well. Hate those types of movies that are all about you know the shark coming to the beach and biting all because it's just not true. It's just not what they do. And yes, yeah, so I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of people's views about sharks and and that stigma. Yeah, so they do get a bad rap. I don't mind the shark movies because they're borderline comedies. Yeah. Um, when when you watch them with a bit of knowledge. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 as campy as B grade uh, horror movies, even yeah. if they are taking it super seriously. And some people get scared by that. Um, what's really frustrating is is the media's response to shark attacks. They report on every single shark attack is reported on. Yeah. Um, and it's always done in a way which uh, vilifies the shark, Yeah. Um, which is really disappointing. You're actually more likely to get killed by a horse here in Australia yeah. than a shark. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure there comes around like a, a stat every so often about how vending machines kill more people than sharks. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Vending machines are deadly. Deadly. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're also more likely to get struck by lightning than a shark. Yeah. On, on average, there are seven shark attacks a year in Australia and not all of them are fatal it's just seven attacks on average which is incredibly low but that's seven times a year that you see it in the news just because it captures the uh, public's attention what's really disappointing is when the response to that by governments is uh, inappropriate uh, uh, management actions so the reality is if shark Shark's going to bite someone, it's going to bite someone. Um, most shark attacks in Australia happen up in New South Wales, particularly that's where our great white uh, shark attacks happen. Uh, it's because that area is used by transitioning sharks. So they're going from a fish-based diet when they're really young to a seal-based diet as they grow up. Yeah. And they no, there's mum's not around to show them that's a seal, that's a person. They've yeah. just got to bite things and find out they have no hands. Yeah. Uh, 
the way I think about it is you hear about all these shark attacks and you go, oh, it's terrible, it's vicious. If a great, if a six, a three to six meter great white shark wanted to eat someone, you wouldn't ever have people returning to shore. Yeah. Like people get bit and the shark usually uh, either attempts one more time or yeah. leaves. Uh, if a six meter great white wants to eat something, it it, it eats will. something and there's yeah. nothing left. Um, but in those states where there are lots of shark attacks, you also have inappropriate shark prevention methods methods yeah. like something a lot of people don't know is you you hear about uh shark nets on popular beaches mm-hmm. um from if you're a conservationist you've probably heard about how terrible they are for catching marine life and killing marine life yeah. um what is ridiculous about them is they don't touch the bottom so you say right. oh this, this this beach is netted it's it's enclosed nothing mm-hmm. can swim in no they only go six meters down <laughs> It's just it's just a yeah. deterrent for sharks swimming at the surface to hit a barrier and then hypothetically turn away. Yeah. Unfortunately, lots of sharks live on the bottom. Things yeah. like sharks don't swim midwater; they swim on the bottom of the sea. Mm. Uh, so they go straight under those shark nets. Uh, yeah. Shark nets are really good at catching things like eagle rays, turtles, and baby whales. Yeah. They're exceptional at catching those things. They're yeah. really bad at deterring sharks, but it's the classic government's got to be seen to do something, so they yeah. do something appropriate because there are no uh, real answers. It's the ocean. It's mm. not our domain. It's no. it's the shark's home. You know, the idea of having some sort of right to access it completely safely is uh, naive, if anyone thinks that. It's not our habitat. It's not our domain. Mm. Uh, it's theirs. We enter it at our own risk. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and you recently, I believe this was to do with sharks as well, you were featured on the Discovery Channel in the US. Uh, can you talk a bit about what that was and how it came about? Yeah, so that was a bit of a bit of a novelty, first appearance on the Discovery Channel <laughs> as part of Shark Week. Um, a couple, two years ago now, uh, mm-hmm. my friend Jules, who runs the very popular One Breath Diver Instagram page, she and I, when I'm down in Melbourne, uh, free dive a lot. There's not many of us free dive photographers around, so uh, we tend to seek each other out. Yeah. Um, but we were diving at a place called Flinders Pier in the middle of winter, so the water temperature was maybe a toasty 11 degrees. Uh, <laughs> cold enough that even if with uh, five mils of neoprene around your body, you still get a brain freeze jumping in. Yeah. Uh, no ice cream required. <laughs> but we dive there in winter because the visibility is always better because there's less rain yeah. and it's swell shark season. So these right. sharks that are around all year, they uh, tend to increase in numbers during winter as ones from Tasmania decide that it's too cold down there and come up to Victoria yeah. to lay eggs. Uh, small shark, uh, really cool, friendly little thing. They're one of the sharks that are known to be really curious. Yeah. They will swim right up to you. Um, which makes them a photographer's dream. Uh, we were looking for these sharks, but we came across one that had been uh, hooked and uh, was trailing about six metres of line. So the fisherman had cut the line without yeah. removing the hook uh, and it just got tangled on weed and the poor thing was uh, basically anchored to the seafloor and fairly exhausted. So we, we got the line free but then had to swim the shark back to the pier to get some pliers yeah. to remove the from the mouth. 
yeah. there's no way it was going to get anything to eat with that hook lodged in its mouth. Yeah. Um, but we, we got it out, we released it, which was a great success story. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what the Discovery Channel was interested in, was sort of shark shark rescues. Uh, the sad thing about it is that they're considered a trash fish by lots of recreational fishermen. Uh, if you're not familiar with the term trash fish, it's mm. something that you catch regularly but don't want to eat or keep. Yeah. Um, and there's a bit of a culture of rather than which is it, it's law to return all unwanted catch to the ocean unharmed. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a culture, though, of to prevent sharks from uh, – to prevent them from getting on your line a second time. Yeah. Uh, people tend to just put a knife through the brain, oh, which is Jesus. terrible. So it's, it's very common in, in winter for the swell sharks and then in November when Port Jackson sharks are around to find oh. dead sharks around piers and jetties. Oh, is really heartbreaking as a, yeah. as a dive biologist but the most horrific part of it is sharks brains don't work like ours if you put a knife through the back of any mammal's brain they would die pretty mm. much straight away unfortunately for sharks they're so well adapted to just keep going no matter what that it doesn't actually kill them oh jesus it just inhibits their motor functions and usually they can't swim they end up spiraling around in the water instead of swimming and uh, eventually starving to death. Which, oh, my God. Uh, if you're up on the pier, you never see that bit. But yeah. as divers, unfortunately, you see it fairly regularly. Um, so there's a big push from conservation efforts, uh, conservationists to get this culture changed. And it is slowly changing. Um, yeah. There's lots of good fishermen out there who will call out this bad practice when they see it and yeah. say that's not – well, I've seen uh, fishermen – uh, basically uh, shout a man off the pier because he did it to a, a banjo ray, which is sort of like a halfway between a shark and a stingray. Yeah. And the rest of the fishermen didn't want anything to do with that and told him to leave. Yeah. Well, you know, good that people are calling it out to help it change, but horrible that that's happening. Yeah. It's just a lack of awareness. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's only fairly recently that, uh, people are starting to accept that fish in general can feel pain for some yeah. reason. We think, lots of people think that uh, pain and uh, stress and uh, discomfort are unique to things that are furry with cute eyes. Yeah. But the reality is is that uh, pain is one of the most useful evolutionary tools uh, an yeah. animal can have. Pretty much everything with a nervous system can feel it right down from brainless nematodes which are only four cells thick right up to things like blue whales yeah it's, it's inbuilt to biology right across the animal kingdom yeah and yeah yeah absolutely um sort of don't know how to move on from that it's a bit grim but it's a bit grim the, the um, positive is that uh you know once you sort of understand animal stress behaviors and their response then when you are diving or snorkeling yeah. is if you can behave in a way that makes these animals feel safe, then yeah. A, you can get much better photos and B, you're safe too. So lots of people are uh, yeah. terrified of stingrays. But so if you're calm around stingrays, they are some of the most beautiful animals you can possibly encounter. Uh, you know, you get these four-metre uh, four long smooth rays in mm-hmm. Victoria that are super friendly. 
they'll come right up to you as long as you're calm and relaxed and you don't pose a threat. They know that they're bigger than you. Mm. The only reason that they would have for uh, for stinging you is uh, if you actively made them feel like they had no other choice. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And um, uh, I wanted to talk, you know, again a bit more about your photography. You've been to, you know, obviously you tend to take a camera everywhere you go. You've been to Galapagos, you've been to Thailand, you're currently in Queensland, you're from Melbourne. When you travel, do you sort of go, I want to go to this place because of the amazing wildlife I'm going to get to see there? Or do you just sort of go, I'm going on holiday here, but I'm going to take my camera with me? Oh, no, all of my holidays are very specifically targeted as yeah. uh, for some sort of wildlife encounter. I, mm-hmm. I don't think I've been on a proper holiday for a, a long time, certainly. I come home from my breaks more tired than when I left. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> during my undergraduate degree, a friend, uh, Harrison, and I decided that just having weekends free to go swimming in waterfalls and stuff was not enough. We yeah. decided to make a half-hour-long documentary about frogs of the wet tropics. Yes. Here here in Queensland, in Townsville, the wet tropics is right on our doorstep. Mm-hmm. It's uh, ancient, ancient forest, uh, mm-hmm. and it's the only kind uh, – it's the only patch of its kind in Australia and in the world. Yeah. So it's got all right. these unique species. So we, we decided to make a, a documentary, but it just meant that every spare minute we had, we were up in the rainforest filming – until two o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, getting up again at five o'clock to film the sunrise. And yeah, I like living that way. It means I've seen some fantastic things and I've mm-hmm. seen things that other people, uh, most people would not even dream of. Um, yeah. Sometimes I see people go on holidays and relaxing and doing recreational things. And I think, oh, maybe that would be nice. But then when the opportunity presents itself, I'd much rather. Uh, yeah do something adventurous that's bad. where's been your favorite place to dive it will always be melbourne yeah so i've the only the only part of the coast in australia that i haven't dived is uh from is west of sejuna so Sejuna's the last town before the nullarbor yeah um i just haven't made it over to wa yet because mm-hmm. I keep getting distracted on my on my way there, and then suddenly my break's over, and I have to turn tail and go home. But uh, from South Australia right up to the northern parts of the Great Barrier Reef, I will always choose Melbourne. It's yeah. so unique. What people don't realise is that there is we everyone hears about the Great Barrier Reef and how amazingly beautiful it is, and how biodiverse—that's the buzzword—how biodiverse the reef is. There's a much better buzzword that I like called endemism, which okay. which refers to animals that are local to an area. So yeah. uh, if something is endemic to Australia, it means it occurs nowhere else. So yeah. something like an echidna is endemic mm-hmm. to Australia and Papua New Guinea and kangaroos and all of those. But it refers to the area. But the Great Southern Reef, which is this continuous habitat that goes all the way from uh, southern Queensland all the way around to uh, to, uh, Perth in WA. The Great Southern Reef Reef is just as biodiverse as the Great Barrier Reef, but it has 90% endemism, which means that nine out of ten things you see there, you could point to something and 90% certain it occurs nowhere else. 
Whereas wow. the Great Barrier Reef is tropical. You can point to most of the yeah. fish on the GBR and say, oh, where's that fish from? And you can say, oh, well, you can find that fish in Hawaii, in Indonesia, in mm-hmm. Australia, in India, in the Red Sea, in Africa. It, they're quite widely distributed. So yeah. none of them are unique to Australia, whereas almost everything down south is unique to Australia. There you go. That's really cool. I didn't know that. And uh, how often do you do you go diving? Is it pretty much every day? I mean, I know you're currently working on a boat, so I'm assuming it will be most days. So, yeah, most at the, at the moment with my current job, um, I'm diving four times a day every day. Wow. Uh, for 10 days and then I get a five-day break. Um, yeah. Do you ever go day. diving on your five-day break? Oh, yes. <laughs> of course you do. Because yeah. it's work diving. I'm not allowed to take my camera would yeah. be inappropriate. I'm yeah. paid to be there. I've got a job to do. Um, so on my days off, that's when I get to do my recreational diving. And if I'm honest, there's nowhere I'd rather be than underwater. Yeah. yeah. When I, um, I also, you know, asked my sister if she had any questions for you and hers was, uh, if you stay down there long enough, will you turn into a merman? And is that why you do it? In the <laughs> hope that you will. Well, my my lots of people say that my career ambition is to become a fish yeah. so <laughs> I'm on my way but what interesting about this uh, is that if you do stay down long enough uh, nitrogen builds up in your tissues and uh, which is called the bends if you ascend yeah. with too much nitrogen yeah. in your tissue it comes out uh, you get really sick but yeah. it also causes something called narcosis nitrogen mm-hmm. narcosis where it inhibits uh, your central nervous system essentially uh and causes you to feel kind of like drunk but without the the heaviness it's uh so lots of people call it getting narked underwater <laughs> certainly if you go deep enough and stay long enough you start feeling like a merman that's for sure <laughs> there you go uh now we are getting close to the end here but i always like to ask a random question um to each of my guests and it's different each time uh and so my question for you jack is if you were arrested with no explanation what would your friends and family assume you had done oh that's a (laughs) difficult question depends who you ask yeah Um, i uh, I don't know. Probably I had been found trespassing to photograph some particular animal. That's, that's true. <laughs> that's what it would be. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> probably that. Probably that. I normally think of an answer for myself for these questions as well, but I hadn't really thought of one. Probably a noise complaint. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Um, but my my final question, which is a question I ask everybody that comes on the podcast, the show is called Loud and Seemingly Confident because that's how I once described myself. Would you do you consider yourself a confident person? Um, so it's a difficult question because when certainly when we first met, I was a fairly confident person, but um, years of academia have taught me otherwise. Uh, so oh, these days. No. These days I identify as quite the introvert and certainly spending a lot of time underwater. Yeah. You don't like you can't chat underwater. It's one of the what? best <laughs> one of the best hobbies because you can go do it with someone and they don't say anything. 
<laughs> you just look at the pretty fish. You don't have to hear about their day. You don't. Have... <laughs> <laughs> their stresses, their anxieties, it all melts away. You just look at the pretty fish. Good. And similarly, it is almost like a form of meditation because you are alone with your thoughts. If I go for a free dive for five hours, that's five hour long meditation. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jack. And thank you, everybody else, for listening. Please subscribe. Leave us a review. It really helps other people get to see this as well. You can follow me on Instagram at Chelsea J. Heaney, or you can follow the podcast at Loud and Seemingly Confident, both on Instagram and Facebook. Jack, where can people find out more about you? So I have everything pooled under one name these days. It's Meet Me Underwater. Sometimes it has underscores between the words, sometimes it has spaces, but if you just Google that, it usually comes up. Beautiful, and you can see all of that amazing photography as well. Well, thank you so much for being here, Jack, and everybody else, we'll see you next week. Bye.